Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Titus, chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Johnny, for reading these final words from the letter to Titus. Once again, welcome to everyone. It's great to, to be with you all. And now we get to unpack God's word and see what he has to say to us here in this passage. Um, if, you, if you don't know, next Sunday marks the beginning of Advent. Advent, that season when churches like ours and many others across the, the world seek to meditate on the, the coming of Christ. His first coming... 2,000 plus years ago, and his future return on a day that no one but God himself knows. We take these uh, four Sundays in a row leading up to, to Christmas to meditate in a special way, in a, in a kind of uh, a more focused way on the incarnation that is Jesus' first appearance and on his imminent return when he'll come to, to judge to make all things new, and to reign as king over the world. But before we get to Advent, and by the way, we'll, start, we'll be starting a new sermon series for Advent next Sunday. Um, Joe Yoon, who I don't see, he might be teaching the kids in the back. Joe's going to be preaching that first sermon in our Advent series this year. But before we get to Advent, we've got to finish up this letter to Titus, also known as the book of Titus. So we'll end that series today. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up or click it open in your device and go to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. If you've been around here for the past few weeks, you may have noticed that there's a, a fair amount of repetition in this letter. It, it's, it's intentional repetition, for instance, the, the author, his name is Paul the Apostle, he mentions the phrase good works, which could also be translated as what is good. Good works or what is good. He says that six times. Six times. And that's a lot for a letter that's only 46 verses long. And what comes across is the fact that he wants us to see that believing the gospel will lead people to love what is good and do what is good. 
In other words, the gospel itself, as we've seen, it has the power to save us, but it also has the power to change us and to teach us and to make us, train us into people who love what is good and do what is good. Another way to state this, and Paul says it this way early on, is that the gospel or the gospel truth leads to godliness. It leads to lives that perhaps slowly but but surely begin to look more and more like Jesus, that resemble Jesus' conduct and his convictions, what he cared about, what he believed, and his character as well. So when the Apostle Paul tells his readers in Titus, his original intended readers in Titus, that the gospel leads to godliness, this was not new information for them. And it's not new information for us at this point either, if you've been here through the, the first part of this series. The people that Paul had in mind when he wrote this letter had been taught already that the gospel leads to godliness. It had been ingrained in them, and yet he wanted to repeat repeatedly remind them of it. They needed to be reminded that believing the gospel will lead you to live a certain way. It'll lead you to love what God loves and to do what he calls good. The verses that that Johnny just read for us a moment ago are Paul's final words for his friend Titus, at least in this short letter. And they're super important words, not just for Titus, but for us too. They're they're super important for us because, because they tell us as a church where we must focus our attention. They they tell us as a church where we must focus our energy, where we must stay committed. And so this is a great word for us, especially as we close out this year, head into a new year, and also as we grow as, as a body as well. These are important words for us. As we grow, as we go through transition, We need to ask ourselves, what are we meant to be focusing on? Where where are our energies meant to be aimed? Where must we stay committed? And so, here's a simple outline for us to understand what Paul says here in Titus 3, 8 to 15. It's where to focus and where not to focus. Where do we focus? Where do we not focus? So let's look at what Paul tells us about where to focus. It's in verse verse 8. He says, this this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. He says, I want you to insist on these things, stress these things, emphasize these things, stay zoned in on these things. But what are these things? What what is the trustworthy saying that he says you need to focus in on? Well, it's what we looked at last week. If we look at the verses that immediately precede verse 8, verse 4, down through verse 7, we'll see what Paul's talking about. Look at what he says there. He says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's the gospel, by the way. 
That's the truth that the Apostle Paul keeps going back to. Everything else that he says in this letter is rooted in this truth right here, the gospel, which tells us that when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. When did the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appear? It appeared in the face and the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who is God in the form of a man who was born to live a perfect life and then die on a cross to save us, to rescue us. And he saved us, Paul says, not because of good works done by us in righteousness. You see, the rescue did not come as a reward for something that we had done. He didn't come and die for us because he noticed that we were pretty good people who were trying hard to live up to his standards, or that we were pretty good people who were trying hard to live decent lives. No, there's nothing about our works, our lives, that merited the rescue that we received. No, it says it's his, that rescue was according to his own mercy. Yeah. He took pity on us, but it's more than pity. You see, we can feel sorry for someone and feel pity for someone without really loving them. But the mercy that God showed us was rooted in love. It only existed because he already loved us and because he loved us. He rescued us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That means that God didn't just rescue us from the penalty that we deserve for our own sin when Jesus died in our place. It means that God went over and beyond that. He chose to make us new. He sent the Holy Spirit into us. If we believed in Jesus, we received the Holy Spirit, which makes us new people. We get a new identity. He gave us himself. He gave us the Spirit. Not just a little bit of him, but he poured out on us richly. So that being justified by his grace, that means we've been declared, if you've believed in Jesus, you've been declared in the courtroom of God to be righteous, innocent, cleared on all charges by grace as a gift. Not because you really were innocent, or I was, or because we put up a good defense. No. He declared us righteous because Jesus is righteous. He declared us innocent because Jesus was innocent. And he cleared us of all charges because Jesus is cleared and does not deserve any punishment. And so, we've been freed from the penalty of sin. But then Paul goes on. He goes on, he says in verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, this is about more than just being forgiven and being declared innocent. This is about adoption. This is about the promise of an inheritance. Not only are we cleared of all charges if we believed in Jesus, no, we are also adopted into God's family. And as heirs, we receive an inheritance. And that inheritance, that future inheritance, it's eternal life. 
eternal life in a new heavens and a new earth that will be recreated by God and we will live with God forever. It's the gospel. <laughs> it's the gospel. And, and Paul is saying, this gospel is something that I need you, Titus, and he's saying to us, I need you, New Hope Fellowship, to focus on, to insist on. This should be the focus of every church. In fact, it has been the focus of every true church from the beginning. In Acts 4, we read about the early church that was first formed in Jerusalem. And we read there that one of the things that marked that early community of Christians is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What was the apostles' teaching? Well, this was at its core. This gospel. This gospel. The goodness and love and kindness of God displayed in the cross that makes us justified adopted, heirs with Christ, who will experience eternal life with our Father forever. It's at the core. Religions, most of them, teach us that if we do better, we'll be forgiven. Most religions recognize the fact that we walk through life with a, a certain amount of guilt and a certain amount of shame. I often use those words together, guilt and shame. I think it's worth just identifying the fact that they don't mean exactly the same thing. If guilt means objective uh, uh, guiltiness. You have done wrong, and for that reason, you are guilty. And you carry the knowledge that you are guilty. But shame is something else. It's a little different. Shame is the feeling, the feeling of worthlessness, the feeling of filth. that comes from being guilty. Religions say that if you do well enough and if you work hard enough, if you do better, maybe you can get rid of that guilt and maybe you can get rid of that shame. But the gospel says no. The gospel says, by grace, God will cover your guilt and he will take away your shame. The grace that God offers us in the gospel is much more than just forgiveness. No, it's forgiveness plus adoption plus acceptance, plus an inheritance. Everything that our souls long for most deeply is provided for us in the gospel. And in the gospel, we also have the promise that Jesus will return. He will return, and we will receive the inheritance he's promised us. Now, that gospel is all over the New Testament, and the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, keeps harping on it over and over again, and he's sending us a message. He's saying, please don't get tired of this gospel. If we get tired of it, it's because we're not paying attention. We're not looking closely at it. He says, here's what you must focus on. It's this message, this news. Don't lose sight of it. Don't get distracted from it. But then the Apostle Paul also gives us something else to focus on. Look at what else he gives us to focus on. Verse 8, he says, This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So he's saying, on the one hand, devote yourself to the gospel. Don't forget about it. Keep looking at it. Keep remembering it. Keep preaching it. Keep singing about it. But then he also says, I want you to do that so that you will also devote yourself to good works. 
or devote yourself to what is good. This also should be the focus of every church. Not just the church in Crete, not just churches that specialize in serving their communities, or churches that specialize in pursuing justice, churches that have a budget for that, and a committee for that, and a team for that, and a heart for that. No, we can't compartmentalize and say that that's for those churches that really care about that sort of thing. No, this is meant to be the focus of every church. Devote yourself to the gospel. Devote yourself to good works. Why? Well, we see the connection there. Paul wants Titus to insist on what he taught in verses 4 through 7 so that that very reality of the gospel in verses 4 through 7 will lead to a life that's changed by the gospel. We've been saved, I said before, we've been saved by the gospel, but we've not just been saved from the penalty of sin, we've been saved to be a people, into a community of people that will show the world what the coming kingdom will look like. What life under the reign of Jesus is meant to look like. Don't we want this for New Hope Fellowship? That we would live as a community that is stubbornly fixated on the gospel of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, and also stubbornly committed to living lives that flow out of that gospel, lives that are marked by consistent, sacrificial good works. Good works, acts of love, acts of kindness, and mercy, and justice. And notice, it's, he doesn't say, and, I, and this, maybe this doesn't even bear repeating, but I just want to make it clear. He doesn't say, be devoted to good works so that God will show you loving kindness and mercy and wash you and adopt you and accept you. No, that's getting it backwards, right? That's what religions tell us generally. If you do enough good work, God will do all these other things for you, but it's backwards. The gospel tells you the opposite, and it makes all the difference. Look, how can you know that God truly accepts and approves of you. It's either got to be because I've been a, a decent person. I've, I've, I, maybe I haven't been decent all the time, but I've been sincere. And even if I haven't been sincere, I've tried to be. And, and, and I've been doing better lately. I had a pretty good run. But how decent is decent enough? How much better have you done lately? And will you keep it up? These are questions that will plague us if we believe that God accepts us if we've done good work. That's why verse 5 matters so much. Where Paul says it's not because of anything good, it's not because of any good works done by us that he justified us, that he saved us, that he forgave us. Remember, remember how often good works shows up in this book? Six times. Paul wants us to know where those good works fit in in the Christian's life because we often get it wrong. Those good works are the product of receiving grace. They're not the condition for receiving grace. And if we don't get that right, then we will never be able to relax. If we don't get that right, we'll never be able to rest. But if you do get that right, then you can rest in the acceptance of God because you realize that it has nothing to do with what kind of person you are or what kind of person you've been or what kind of person you're trying to be. No, no, no. It has everything to do with what kind of God he is and that he has loved you and he shows you his love in Christ and he will not stop loving you. 
No, we will never have peace. We will never feel good enough. We'll never be able to get rid of the shame and the guilt if we think, if we think that God's acceptance of us is somehow based on what we've done or haven't done or how good we've been. No, we won't ever be able to be at peace until you know and until you keep believing that God's love for you predates any improvements that you've made lately, that his love for you predates even all your failures. He accepts you. He delights in you because of Jesus. If you have put your faith in him, then you can rest assured that the Father loves you as much as he loves Jesus. Everything the Bible tells us about how to live flows out of that gospel. We can't, we won't, we won't even want to live the way that God calls us to live if we don't believe that the gospel is true. There's a, there's a question that this raises for us, and maybe you ask this as you read it, as you read it. When God says that, when, when, when Paul tells us that he wants us to be devoted to good works or devoted to what is good, we might ask the question, well, what exactly is that? What is good? What is good? I mean, I mean, if we were to poll everyone in this room and poll everyone on this block, do, you know, run a poll of this county, we'd probably get various ideas on what really is good and what is not good. Competing concepts of good. Recently, I heard about a push to um, a push for new laws in Canada to uh, to allow assisted death for patients in hospitals suffering from mental health problems. So if, the, if this goes through, it may in fact be easier for people suffering from extreme mental health issues in Canada to pursue legal assisted suicide. I wonder, is that good? Is that good? Certainly the people that are pushing for this law believe it's good. But what do you think? I heard the testimony recently of a girl who at 16 years old had gender reassignment surgery. At 16, she made, or doctors made, um, irreversible changes to her body. And now four years later, she's 20 and she regrets it deeply and she's wondering why she did this, and she's wondering why it was allowed to happen. And as I heard her testimony, I thought, is this good? Is this good? Was that reassignment surgery good for her? Certainly she would have said it was when she was 16. Now at 20, she doesn't think it was. And now I'm not asking, are these things, whether it's assisted suicide or whether it's gender reassignment, uh, especially for, for children, I'm not, I'm not saying... Is it well-intended? I'm assuming it's well-intended. I'm asking, is it good? And how can we know? To answer that question, I believe we need to ask, what is it that God says is good? And to find out what God says is good, we need to ask him. We need to be steeped in his words so that we can hear him when he tells us what is good. These words in the scriptures were written and preserved for us. And one of my burdens for us as a church is that we would be so rooted in these words, that we would be so steeped in the Bible, 
that any question of what is good would take us back there. Where we can truly find out what God says is a good work. And what may be a well-intended, but foolish, ultimately evil work. The Bible has been used, and I've got to admit this, the Bible's been used to support all forms of evil, from racism to genocide. Perhaps you know this. Most history classes will teach us this, right? The Bible's been used to, to argue for atrocities. But you know, as much as that's true, it's also true that throughout history, there have always been people, there have always been communities who were truly devoted to God's word, who were truly devoted to studying God's word, to understanding God's word, to obeying it, who stood up in the face of those atrocities and said, no, God doesn't approve of this. That stood up to the majority and said, you're you're twisting God's words. You're using it to accomplish the evil that you want to accomplish or the misguided foolishness that you want to accomplish. There have always been those who stood up and argued from Scripture. And in some cases, it was those people arguing from Scripture that were able eventually to stop the atrocities. Whether it was the the, the transatlantic slave trade or southern segregation, the most powerful arguments made against those practices were from the Bible, by people who loved the Bible and studied the Bible and believed, no, 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 this is where we find out what is good. Noah, we need to be those people. We need to be those people because it's certainly true that there are still folks and there are movements who will twist God's word or or they'll do interpretive gymnastics to make the Bible say what they really, really wish it said to support their prejudices or to support their preferences or to support their ideas. Again, sometimes sincerely held ideas. But we need to know the Scriptures We can't assume that we know the scriptures. We can't assume that we already know what God says. We need to go back to God's word and investigate it. How can we have an ethic that enables us to navigate dilemmas, whether they have to do with sexuality or whether they have to do with race, whether they have to do with any any number of the issues that face our society? How can we face those and navigate those ethical questions without an ethic that's deeply rooted in the scriptures? We need to know the scriptures. It's worth it. Truth is worth it. It's worth questioning what the voices you hear tell you. Even if questioning those voices at times may be risky and may come at a cost. Only the creator, New Hope, only the creator gets to define what is truly good. And we can trust him when he says something is good. Even when what he says is good feels so hard to us, or feels contrary to what we instinctively believe is good. We can trust him. Or even when when what he says is good seems to contradict our own sensibilities. It contradicts the other voices that we're hearing that we want to listen to. No, we need to trust. 
the Creator, when He says, this is good, this will lead to flourishing, this will not. In a sense, it's a call to die to ourselves, to die to our own sensibilities, die to our own instinctive beliefs. It's one of the reasons Jesus said he called us to die to ourselves, to pick up our cross and to follow him. So much of what he tells us doesn't immediately seem instinctively true. Like he says that you're flourishing. You, you're, you will flourish and experience blessing if you, for instance, love your enemy. I don't think I would have arrived at that truth or wanted to believe that truth unless I believed in the Jesus who told me that truth. Otherwise, I would reject that immediately. Next year, God willing, we're going to look at the Ten Commandments and see what they're about, see what they tell us negatively and positively. And part of the reason we're doing that is so that we can come away with a, a, a deeper appreciation, not only for what it is that God says is good, but see how what he says is good, as it's contained in those Ten Commandments, will actually lead to our human flourishing, will actually lead to blessedness and joy in our lives. As we seek to obey those laws, although we cannot do it perfectly, and although we need Christ's sacrificial death on our behalf because he kept it perfectly and we can't, still they serve a purpose for us. Even now, they guide us into knowing what living good lives looks like. In, uh, in Titus, we find out that good or good works aren't just a matter of private morality. It's not just a matter of being someone who doesn't lie, doesn't cheat. No, being good and being godly also has to do with outward acts, of, outward acts of serving others, protecting others, loving others. That's why verse 14 says this. It says, and let our people, that's us, New Hope, learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. You see, good works involve disadvantaging ourselves to advantage others. Another question that arises when we think that God is calling us to, to, to do good works, to live out what he calls to be good, is you might say, which good works exactly is he calling me to? Is he calling us to? After all, look around the world. There's so many needs. Look in your own family. Look in your own neighborhood. Look in your own school system. You see so many needs. There is so much hurt. There is, even within our church, there is so much hurt. There is so much grief. There is so much need to be filled. How do we know where we should focus our attention. I have an encouraging word for you. It's from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10. Verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God and not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Get this, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I don't know about you, but it helps me to think that when I'm trying to figure out what exactly is God calling me to do, there's so much good that one could do, but where should I focus my attention? It comforts me to know, well, well, God's already prepared the good works that he has for you. Your job is to be prepared and to walk into them, to walk in them. I, I like to think about it as simply as this, as, as like someone who's prepared a, a hotel room for you. And they open the door and they say, here's the room. All you got to do is walk in. 
or you show up with a reservation at a restaurant, you tell them your name and they take you to the, to the table that they have already prepared. I don't like it when they say, sit where you like. I, I find it hard to make that decision. You can sit here or there or there. I feel like, just tell me where to sit. Which table did you prepare for us? And they say, right here, all you have to do is walk in, sit down. It's so good to know that God has prepared good works for us. Our job is to be, what what did he say, devoted to good works. That means committed to good works. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, ready for every good work. Our job is to be ready. He prepares them, and we walk in. This morning, I was in a missions and outreach team meeting. Our church, if you don't know, has a missions and outreach team that, that focuses on helping our church discern how to best partner with missionaries and other ministries, both here locally and overseas. And in this uh, missions and outreach meeting, we were um, uh, planning today about how to better, how, we, how we're going to be partnering with an individual by the name of Sasha and his family. Sasha and his family are, if you were in our, um, if you're a member here and you were in our last members meeting, you know this already, but for those of you who weren't there or aren't members, Sasha and his family are from Ukraine, and they've been displaced from Ukraine, and they are now in Germany as refugees, and they're looking to come to the United States to be here for a longer period of time as refugees here in the U.S., and they needed help. And so a church or a community in South Carolina um, was able to provide them with the help to help them plug in and, and plant new lives in South Carolina. But they needed more help. They needed help getting from Germany to the United States. They needed help with housing, to pay for their housing once they get to South Carolina. Now, it just so happens that New Hope Fellowship has a longstanding relationship with this man, Sasha, and his family that goes back more than a decade. This church was instrumental in helping a church in, the U- in Ukraine uh, survive and thrive and worship the Lord there. And since then, that relationship has changed over the years. We don't have this tight of a connection to them anymore. But here we are in 2022, and who would have thought that in 2022 there would be a refugee crisis in Ukraine? And a relationship that God formed between our church and this man and his family over a decade ago would turn into an opportunity to see a good work and just walk in and say, we have resources, we can help you with that. There are countless stories like that in the the history of this church, in the history of every church, and maybe there are stories like that in your own personal life. I mean, we could say, look, there's so many refugees coming from Ukraine, and there are refugee crises in other parts of the world too. Where do we help? Where do we go? The Lord says, here's Sasha. I prepared him and his family for you. I've prepared this need for you. Walk in. And it still requires discernment to know whether or not to walk in and and where to walk in. And so in community, we pray, we seek the Lord's help, and by his spirit, he leads us, and we humbly walk in in obedience. What's required of us, certainly we need discernment. Certainly we need to be sensitive to the leading of the spirit, But I'd argue that more than anything, what we need is just a basic disposition that says, I'm ready. Show me. A a basic disposition that says yes to the Lord. A a default setting that says, "I'm, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for good work. Show me where I can step in. I am, um, I really enjoy coffee shops. I like coffee and I like coffee shops. 
And so often when my family are, and I, when we're traveling, sometimes I'll keep my eye open for, if we're in like in a new city, a new town, I'm, I, I keep my eye open to see if there's any like local coffee shops. Because I like to, to take some time to go into one of those shops, maybe get a cup of coffee, and if the coffee's good, I'll buy some beans, I'll bring them home, make that coffee at home. I like, you know, it's like supporting local business, and the coffee's great. I just love it. And so often, whenever we go to one of these places, wherever we're traveling, sometimes I'll even look ahead of time, where's, where's good coffee in this city or that city? And then, slyly sometimes, I'll tell, I'll tell my wife, um, I think, you know, we're staying in Airbnb somewhere, I'll say, we need, a, we need to make a supermarket run. I'll go to the supermarket, you guys sit tight, and I'll go to the supermarket, but first I'll stop at the, at the local coffee shop, and I'll buy some coffee. If it's any good, I'll make several supermarket runs during the course of our vacation there. But there have been times when, when I've wanted to go get some coffee at a local shop, and it just hasn't worked out because of budget or because of busyness of our schedule. It just hasn't fit into our schedule. And so I've had to say, no, sorry, can't visit that place. I'm not going to be able to get that coffee over there. And then when we leave that town, we move on, and we come back home, there's a, there's a, a, a regret in my heart. I, I, I wish I would have been able to go it just wasn't possible. You see, my default setting is to say, I want to go find the coffee and drink it, but sometimes I just can't do it. Sometimes i got to say no. I believe there's something of this kind of disposition that needs to be in our heart with regard to good works. It's, it's this default setting that says, I'm looking, I want to see where is their need, not where is their coffee, but where is their need that align with maybe the resources God's given me and the ability so I can meet those needs? Or maybe where is there a need that maybe I can't meet it, but our church can and we can come in? And then there's going to be times where God's going to say, we can't do that right now. We don't have the bandwidth. We don't have the resources. We don't have the time. It's not the right time. But the default setting should be yes until shown otherwise. This is, I believe, what God is calling us to. And this, I believe, goes a long way towards determining which good works should we engage in. The default is yes. And as we move towards them, as God brings them to our attention, we will discern whether it's possible or not, whether we can in good faith step forward or we must pull back. There's a blessedness in the uncertainty of that. There's, there's, there's wonderful things to be learned in that process. So where do we focus our attention as a church and our energy as a church? Where do we focus our energy as households? It's on the gospel. And it's on living lives that align with the gospel. And, and lives that align with the gospel are lives that will be dedicated to good works. At the very end of verse 8, Paul says, these things are excellent and profitable. Let, let God tell you what's excellent and profitable and set all your attention there. I think that's a safe place to be. But as we end, there's one last thing we have to see here. God tells us in this passage not only where to focus our energy and attention, but where not to focus. Where not to focus. That's in verse 9. It says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful he is self-condemned. Paul's saying, if you're focusing on the gospel and on good works that flow out of the gospel, you're going to have to stop focusing on these things over here. Pay no attention to foolish controversies, especially he has in mind theological controversies and debates within the church. 
genealogies. We don't know exactly what that meant, but it's probably theories about Jesus' ancestry or about the ancestry of other biblical, biblical figures that people would argue about and try to, try to call out um, the significant wisdom from. And Paul says, all that is a waste of time. Avoid dissension. That means disagreement. It's not just disagreement because some disagreements are, are okay and we should engage them and follow them through. But he's talking about disagreements that lead to discord, that lead to division and a breakdown in relationships. Quarrels about the law. He says avoid them. Avoid those useless fights about the minutia of God's law. And, and, and he says at, at best... These things will just distract you from the gospel, which is bad enough as it is. But at worst, they don't just distract you from the gospel. They undermine the gospel. They contradict the gospel. So, so here's the question that I found myself asking as I read this, and I want to ask you to ask yourself this question. What kind of foolish debates distract you from the gospel? What kind of foolish debates do you get lured into? Or do you welcome others into and lure them into? Maybe they're theological debates. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're political debates. What kind of debates lead you to grow distracted from? And in a sense, those debates even undermine your attention and focus and trust in the gospel. It's interesting that when the Apostle Paul goes beyond just saying, avoid these debates... It gets much more intense than that. It says in, in verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and self-condemned. What Paul's describing here is a kind of worst-case scenario. Really, he's describing the last step in a worst-case scenario, where within the community of a church, there's a person or people that are pursuing debates, arguments, fights, that are undermining the community, undermining the gospel, and they've been asked to stop, they've been, they've been pleaded with, but they, they're just so fixated on that thing, whatever those issues are that they just care so deeply about, that they're just willing to keep pushing, even though it's destroying community, it's hurting relationships, and it's distracting the church from its mission. The person that Paul describes here stirs the pot, and they're so stuck in their opinion that they're so filled with, with, with arrogance, perhaps, even, that, that they refuse to pull back, even when other people, friends, are saying, listen, you're on the wrong track here. Let's stop fighting about this. This doesn't matter that much. Or what you're, what you're trying to persuade others of is, is unwise, even hurtful, unbiblical. Paul says this kind of person is, is divisive. And Paul says, so after engaging that person and listening to them and trying to dissuade them and trying to warn them, eventually, he says, have nothing to do with them. It's a serious word, isn't it? That's a heavy word. It echoes what's in Romans 16, where it tells us in Romans 16, verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Obstacles. Obstacles to what? Obstacles to believing the gospel. Obstacles to living out the gospel in community. They're not helping. They're making things harder. Paul says, avoid them. Avoid them. Such a person does not serve our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they 
deceive the hearts of the naive. He says there's danger in folks like this. Avoid them. And avoid here means, it, it, it means like keep away. It means turn away. It means avoid association. It, there's a really ugly, I don't like this word, but I think it's, it's a near synonym. It's the word shun. Shun in the sense of I can't have anything to do with this person anymore. And, and this might happen at the individual level. Maybe it's happened in your life where there's certain, I was just talking to someone recently. They were like, I was in this relationship with this person for so long and I really loved them, but they were so toxic. Eventually, I just had to say, that's it. I cut off the relationship. We don't even talk anymore. But this can happen at the community level too, at the church level, where someone is put out of the community of the church because of their persistent sinful divisiveness. And again, this is not something that happens quickly. It's a final step in a process that Matthew 18 actually outlines for us where, where that person is warned and then warned by more people and then the church is told about it, and the church tries to warn them and eventually the church as a, as a congregation has to say, we can't have you as part of this community anymore because you're doing such damage to the testimony of Christ and damage to this community. It's interesting that things can get that drastic, that awful. But where does it start? It starts with, what am I focusing on? If my energies and attention and focus are on the gospel and good works, I don't go there. But if my focus is away from those things on other things that are not the gospel and good works that flow out of the gospel, that's where that trajectory ends. It's scary. It's frightening. But the question again for us is, what distracts you from focus on the gospel and the good works that flow from the gospel. What is it in your life or in, the, in your household, in your family, that tends to distract you from the gospel? What is it that can distract us as a church? We've been talking as a church for a while now about our desire to get a new building. This is something we desire to do, we're praying for, and we're working towards. And God willing, in due time, he'll gift us with a building. We'll see. But isn't it possible that something like that, like a, a good desire like that, can become a distraction from the gospel and from good works? Like, like we, can't, we can't walk out these good works. We can't support Sasha, or we can't support, we can't help plant that church, or we can't support these people. There are people in our, in, our, in, our family, in our church family who need help, whether it's through counseling or they need just material help. They need housing allowances. They need help with any of those things. And we say, well, we can't do that because we're trying to, we're focused on this building thing right now, Right? We need to pray against that. And we need to be stubbornly focused on the gospel. And any desire for a building for us needs to flow out of a desire to be able to engage in gospel ministry that focuses on that gospel and on good works that flow out of it. The building is just meant to be a tool to live that out. And if it, if it becomes something other than that, I hope God never gives us one. So, New Hope. In the midst of this uh, lost culture in Crete, these churches were being called to devote themselves to good works. And the same goes for us as a church. And by God's grace, he's been leading us into good works. He's been doing that for years since his church started. But recently, it's looked a certain way. Over the past couple of years, this church has had the blessed privilege, the honor of being able to use our mercy and benevolence ministry to care for the needs of people within this community who have needed help, whether it's relief from their circumstances, healing, housing, counseling, assistance in other forms. 
And, and, our, and more of our mercy, we've been dedicating more and more funds to that over the past two years than we have ever before. It's a huge blessing to be able to do that. We continue to serve missionaries and partner with missionaries around the world. I told you about our Ukrainian friends, Sasha and his family. We've gotten the opportunity to partner with, with churches that are planting in places like the Bronx, Fordham Community Church, and now even more recently in Yonkers, Axe Church in Yonkers. We get to partner with them and be a part of what they're doing, the needs that they're, the good works that they're walking into in those places. And so much more of these good works are happening quietly in your personal relationships. So New Hope, the takeaway is simply this, and it's let's be careful to devote ourselves to these good works. Let's seek to grow. And we'll only be able to do that if we stay devoted to the gospel. If we lose our focus on the gospel and start focusing on ourselves, like, like how good are we doing? Are we helping enough people? Um, are we, are we, should we do, are, have we done well enough? Is God okay with how much we've done? Once we start focusing on ourselves, we'll realize that we're never going to care enough. We're never going to give enough. We're never going to do enough. The world is filled with need and suffering. We can't even move the needle we will grow overwhelmed and discouraged with our own lack of love and our own lack of concern and devotion, our own lack of courage. It'll overwhelm us. We'll get exhausted. And so what we need to do is keep going back to the finished work of Jesus, the sufficiency of his work on the cross. And out of that, we'll get security and we'll get safety and we'll get peace, which will flow into, will motivate us to live Jesus-y lives and seek the good of others. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on these things. The goodness and loving of kindness of God, our Savior, has appeared, and he will appear again. And so right now, in this in-between period, we get to follow Jesus and live like him in the power of his spirit who he gives us. We won't do it perfectly. But the good news is that even when we fail, the same gospel that motivates us to good works gives us hope when we fail to do good works. It's a perfect system God's designed. And so Paul ends this letter with these words, grace be with you all. Grace be with you all. May grace be with us, New Hope Fellowship, as we seek to focus on the gospel and live lives dedicated to doing what God calls good. Let's pray. Father, make our hearts rest in the Father's acceptance and affection for us. Uh, make our hearts rest in Jesus' finished work for us. And keep teaching us, Lord, to love what you love, to pursue what you call good, to, to value what you call excellent, to do what you call fruitful. Give us the grace to do this, Lord, and we will give you all the credit. In Jesus' name. Amen.